everyone, and welcome to the Unknown Friends Book Review Podcast. I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and I'm so glad that you've joined me for today's episode, which is the 13th of the season, and incidentally, my 101st episode of all time on Unknown Friends. That is crazy to me, uh, considering that when I started the podcast back in April of 2020, I did not even know if I would get through 10 episodes, much less 100. So thank you so much for listening, both today and throughout the last two years. It has been both challenging and a ton of fun for me to host a literary podcast, and it definitely never would have lasted if it hadn't been for you all. So today, in Season 3, Episode 13, we are embarking on a new trilogy, and it's one that has been a favorite of mine ever since I was probably 11 or 12 years old, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. These books had a deep impact on me as a young teenager, and to this day, they still inform um, aspects of the way I process the world around me. So I am just delighted to finally get to discuss The Lord of the Rings here on the podcast. Let's start by talking a bit about the author himself, John Ronald Rule Tolkien. He was an Englishman through and through, but he was actually born in 1892 in South Africa, where his father was working as a bank clerk. Uh, but tragically, his father died when Tolkien was only four years old, and then his widowed mother resettled in England with her two young sons. Now, they weren't what you would call destitute, quite, but neither were they wealthy, and so the Tolkien family went through some very hard times as Mrs. Mabel Tolkien was trying to make ends meet and raise her boys and educate them as well as she could afford. Also, an unfortunate estrangement from their extended family happened when Tolkien was eight um, as a result of his mother converting to Catholicism. That did not go over well with her family, who were Baptists. And then when Tolkien was 12, his mother was diagnosed with diabetes and passed away several months later, um, leaving her sons in the care of her parish priest, Father Francis Morgan. So the Tolkien boys ultimately had to live in a boarding house in their teens, and at that same time, they were attending school at King Edward's School in Birmingham. Now, Tolkien was a good student, and he was particularly gifted with languages. So he learned Latin and Greek at a young age, and throughout his teens and into his 20s, he learned numerous um, Germanic languages, French, Spanish, Old English, Welsh, Finnish, and many others. So he really was a genius when it came to languages or philology. And he started making up his own languages as well, even as a kid. So eventually he went to Oxford to study classics at first, but that didn't suit him quite right. So he switched to studying English language and literature, and he did very well with that. 
Meanwhile, he had also fallen in love with a girl named Edith, um, but he was very young at the time, and she was a Protestant, and so Tolkien's guardian, Father Francis, told him he was not allowed to see her or correspond until he was of age, which Tolkien obeyed. But three years later, on the day he turned 21, Tolkien wrote Edith a letter proposing marriage. So uh, he was not one to forget or give up easily. And she agreed to convert to Catholicism, which was very important to Tolkien. And eventually they did get married in 1916 when Tolkien was 24. By this time, however, the Great War was well underway, and Tolkien enlisted and eventually was sent to France to fight on the Western Front. He spent months in the trenches in horrible, horrible conditions, unfathomable, and was finally sent home with trench fever and had to spend a good month in a hospital recovering. And in fact, he he had recurring bouts of illness over the next couple of years, which kept him uh, in and out of the hospital and made life a bit difficult for him for a while. But already at this point in his life, he was starting to write poems and mythic tales, and he was working on his invented languages. And then after working for a few years as a lexicographer on what would become the Oxford English Dictionary, in 1920, he was pleasantly surprised by being appointed to a post as an English professor at the University of Leeds. So he and his young family lived in the north of England for the next five years. But in 1925, they were able to move back to Oxford because Tolkien became a professor of Anglo-Saxon at the University of Oxford, uh, Pembroke College specifically. And Tolkien spent the rest of his career at Oxford, though in 1945 he shifted roles slightly. He traded his um, Anglo-Saxon professorship for a post as an English professor at Merton College, Oxford. So he spent the rest of his life in academia as a professor, and he and his wife Edith raised four children in Oxford, three sons and a daughter, and Tolkien remained a devout Catholic to the end of his days. Now, interestingly, he never pursued a career as a writer. He was an academic, uh, an Oxford don, and he seemed content with that being his professional life. That said, he never lost his love and genius for languages, and throughout his life, in his free time, he was always working on what really became this one massive project, which started with the invention of languages, but developed into the invention of a whole world, a whole um, history and mythology to go along with the languages he'd created. Because the development of language is inextricably involved with the progression of history and culture, and so naturally, Tolkien, being the perfectionist that he was, could not create satisfactorily realistic languages without creating imaginary cultures to give those languages context. So from the time he was a very young man 
literally to the end of his life, he was constantly making up stories and legends to develop this world he was imagining, which was modeled largely on England and Scandinavia. He called this world Middle-earth, which was an old or uh, Middle English term for uh, basically the real world that we live in, the middle world between hell and heaven. So Tolkien created all these tales about the creation of Middle-earth and its ancient peoples um, and how its different realms and races developed over centuries and interacted, its wars, its industries, its geography, its cosmology, just everything. This is why this was a lifelong project of Tolkien's. He was a perfectionist, like I said, he was very thorough, and if he was going to create something, he wanted it to be fully fleshed out, uh, crafted with intention and realism. And in so many ways, becoming an author really wasn't on his radar, ironically. Yes, throughout his career, he would periodically get some of his Middle-earth stories or poems published, but these were pretty quiet publications, and they seem to have been written much more for himself and his family than for any kind of public audience. So this begs the question, how did we get The Lord of the Rings? Well, the trilogy was written well into Tolkien's career. Uh, he began it in 1937 and didn't finish it until 1954. Uh, but really, to understand the context, we have to talk briefly about his earlier book, The Hobbit. So the origin of that book is a fairly well-known little story. Tolkien was grading exams one day, and a student had left a page blank in their examination booklet. And for unknown reasons, Tolkien was inspired to pick up a pen and write on the blank page the strange sentence, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Now, he didn't know what a hobbit was, but after he had written down the made-up word, he decided he needed to figure out what a hobbit was and what kind of hole it inhabited and why. Um, because, again, Tolkien didn't create things at random or in isolation. His approach to creative work was holistic. So he started brainstorming and started telling a story to his kids about this creature called the Hobbit, and the rest is history. The story ultimately worked its way into the world of Middle-earth that Tolkien had already been imagining, and he soon started sharing the story with a few friends, including C.S. Lewis, until eventually it fell into the hands of a publisher who thought it could make a marketable children's book. So, The Hobbit was published in 1937, and it met enough success that the publisher quickly encouraged Tolkien to write a sequel. Now, Tolkien first offered his Legends of Middle-Earth for publication, but the publisher was like, yeah, no, people are not going to be interested in that, sorry, uh, we want you to write another Hobbit story instead. So, Rather grudgingly, Tolkien agreed to try to write another Hobbit story. Uh, but it was a 16-year process 
for him to write The Lord of the Rings. He was very busy with his academic work. And of course, all the events of World War II happened during this time. And Tolkien's sons were fighting in the war. So there were lots of other demands on his time and energy. Um, But we know he was not the type to give up easily or to be happy with an underdeveloped product. So he stuck with it from 1937 all the way to 1954, when the first book of the trilogy was finally published, followed by books two and three over the next um, year and a half or so. Now, of course, that's the other thing. Tolkien did not envision The Lord of the Rings as a trilogy at all. But since the entire story is well over a thousand pages long, I do understand the publisher's insistence that it be divided into more manageable parts for publication. So that's how it got printed in three separate volumes, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. Now, once it was published, it honestly came as a big surprise to everyone and to no one more than Tolkien himself that the trilogy was as popular as it very quickly became. It was almost immediately serialized on BBC Radio, and Tolkien soon found himself discussing film rights as well, to his astonishment. And in the 1960s especially, The Lord of the Rings was seized on by some people that Tolkien had had no notion whatsoever of writing for, namely the hippies and other counterculture groups of the 60s. They picked up on elements in Tolkien's writing that seemed to align with some of their causes. So things like Tolkien's love of peace instead of war and his love of nature and his distrust of industrialism. So funny story, at one point, the Beatles wanted to make an animated film of The Lord of the Rings with um, the four guys playing Frodo, Sam, Gollum, and Gandalf. Thank goodness that never happened. Anyway, the long and short of it was that The Lord of the Rings captured the imagination of an entire generation and revived, or you could even say defined, the standards of modern fantasy, um, high fantasy specifically, or epic fantasy. And I think fantasy writers to this day are still trying to live up to the legacy that Tolkien left. And I think the reason that they fall short is because Tolkien's approach was so unique. At least that's a primary reason they fall short. Tolkien wasn't trying to become a fantasy author. Uh, He wasn't trying to be an author at all, per se. But what he did write, which he did mostly for his own satisfaction, he was willing to spend his whole life working on. I think that's why it's so incredibly well done. Um, You know, even after the publication of The Lord of the Rings, he continued writing and rewriting legends of Middle-earth up until his death. So really, the trilogy is just one window into his massive creative work. So all that, briefly, is the context from which we received The Lord of the Rings. 
Unfortunately, the story has been interpreted and used in many ways that Tolkien did not intend. But this is partially due to the way Tolkien wrote. And there were a lot of good reasons for him to write the way he did. He disliked allegory, uh, which for him meant stories that have uh, symbolic meaning, a pretty specific symbolic meaning. So each element in the story uh, pretty clearly, pretty crisply serves as a symbol for, you know, one thing. So Tolkien said, for instance, that if he had wanted to, he could have written The Lord of the Rings as an allegory for World War II, in which case, you know, one character or group of characters would represent the Nazis, another would symbolize the Allies or the British or whatever, and the conflicts between them would have clear parallels to the conflicts of the World War. But Tolkien didn't much like this kind of storytelling, where the story's meaning is somewhat limited by its use of allegory. He felt that an applicable story was more worthwhile than an allegorical story. For him, stories with applicability could have a range of meanings, as opposed to just one. So the villains in the story don't have to specifically represent the Nazis, for instance. They can represent any uh, you know, power-hungry person or group that tyrannizes over others. Tolkien much preferred this kind of storytelling, and it's what he tried to do with The Lord of the Rings. It's not that the elements of the story don't have meaning, but they're not quite as limited as the meaning of an allegory. Um, so The Lord of the Rings isn't an exclusive allegory for specific things in the real world, but its characters and events are applicable to many things in the real world. And while the story is not a Christian allegory, it is nonetheless deeply Christian in its structure and style. And I'm looking forward to talking lots more about that in our next two episodes. For now, let me just start to close by giving a short rundown of the storyline of book one, at least. I'm assuming that most of you guys are at least a little bit familiar with the story, uh, maybe through Peter Jackson's films if you haven't read the books for yourself. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Uh, this is one of those stories that has been so influential and culturally pervasive over the last several decades that to me it feels a little pointless to work too hard to avoid revealing spoilers. Um, I'd be surprised if you're not at least vaguely aware of the basic storyline of The Lord of the Rings, even if you've never read it. But for anyone who hasn't read the books, or for those who maybe it's been a long time since you read them, I will just summarize the essential plot line. So our hero is a hobbit named Frodo Baggins, and hobbits, of course, are uh, child-sized people who live agrarian lives and love peace and comfort and good food and friendship. And for Tolkien, hobbits in a lot of ways are quite similar to the English people. They have English values and English temperaments for the most part. So Frodo is a middle-aged hobbit who learns that he has inherited a ring with mysterious powers 
When you wear the ring on your finger, it makes you invisible. But much more than that, Frodo discovers that the ring was forged centuries ago by the Dark Lord Sauron, who is currently the greatest force of evil alive in Middle-earth. And Sauron is wanting at all costs to reclaim the ring so that he can use its power to enslave all of Middle-earth. So Frodo, along with a few of his friends, uh, most importantly his faithful friend Sam Gamgee, set out on a journey to deliver the ring to the most powerful good guys in Middle-earth so that they can either keep it hidden and safe or perhaps use its power against the Dark Lord. But soon it becomes clear that the ring is too dangerous a weapon either to keep or to use. It has a corruptive influence. And so Frodo's uh, mentors or guides, Gandalf the wizard and Elrond, Lord of the Elves, decide that the only possible way to uh, resist the Dark Lord is to destroy the Ring of Power. But it can only be destroyed in the volcanic fire in which it was first forged. And that volcano, called Orodruin, is in the heart of Mordor, where the Dark Lord has his stronghold. So in other words, whoever wants to destroy the Ring will have to make a perilous journey into the jaws of death, as it were, into the heart of darkness, to find the mountain or a druin and toss the ring into the volcanic fire. A huge task, and pretty nearly a hopeless one. But to everyone's surprise, including his own, Frodo volunteers to be the one to make this journey and take the ring into Mordor to destroy it. He feels that since the ring has passed to him, it is in some sense his responsibility, if it's anyone's, to try to destroy it if he can. So Frodo and Sam and their friends set out with a few other companions from the races of men and elves and dwarves, and the group travels south and east toward Mordor, but as you would expect, they encounter quite a few challenges along the way. And this part of the journey fills up the first book of the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring. The book ends when, for a variety of reasons, the group that set out together is splintered into a few smaller groups that each have to go their separate ways to accomplish separate tasks. And it's Frodo and Sam alone that keep the original mission by continuing to travel toward the land of Mordor with the ring. So, I think that's plenty of information to get us started, and it is time for me to wrap up today's episode. So, now that we've got a lot of the context in place for a discussion of The Lord of the Rings, next time in episode 14, we will be able to start delving into more thematic material as we discuss the trilogy's characters and uh, the development of its its Christian elements, with a primary focus on book two of the trilogy, The Two Towers. So thank you so much for joining me today, and I do hope you will return in two weeks for the continuation of this discussion. 
As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wynn Productions, and anytime you have questions or comments about any of the books I review, feel free to message me on Facebook or Instagram, and I would love to have a conversation with you. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.